I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another History Hack. We have a treat for you today, ladies and gents, boys and girls. Uh, we have proper Great War history heavyweight royalty uh, mm-hmm. in the house. <laughs> it, is the, it is the Lockie and Alex show. How are you doing, Alex? I'm not bad, not bad. Very excited about this. I know you are. You've got like a big silly grin on your face. Oh, yes. Because it's not only World War I. It's Italy in World War One. Uh, it oh, it's He's amazing. I can't tell you. You are like the pinup for middle-aged <laughs> men who are like, <laughs> like the fashion at the moment, isn't it? Is like to go outside the Western Front and do stuff. Um, and because you do the Italian Front, they're all like, damn. Uh, and you have a new book out, and that's why you're here. But how are you? How's Paris? It's Bastille oh, Day. It is Bastille Day, and uh, everything's shut. So yeah, that's all good. <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, you've, you've managed to offload your child, who's not yep. today, uh, with Daddy. So we're going to talk about your amazing new book. So last time you came on to talk to us about um, your, I think it was it's your thesis, isn't it, that you worked yeah. on the book, which was morale in the Italian army. But we're going much broader today yep. because you have a new book, which is amazing. Uh, we've both read it. Italy and its empire in the First World War, which is great because we hear a lot about... Um, Germany wanting an empire and like you know the blackhead a joke about just a sausage yes. outside <laughs> place um we hear a lot about the British empire and French imperial but I think it passes us by that Italy are another imperial power is that what you want yeah. to attack with this yeah definitely people think of Italy as a uh country that starts building its empire under fascism in the 1930s so mm. people tend to think of the Ethiopian war and that but actually um Italy is already building an empire starting from the 1860s 1870s so already by the time of the first world war it's an imperial power it's a pretty small imperial power compared to France and Britain but it's still there and it's it's part of the picture that doesn't really get much of a look in so I'm excited to be able to to try and fill that in and, uh, and as you said, lots of people now talk about uh, and are interested in the French and British empires in the war. So um, I think it's nice to be able to show that there's an Italian side to that story as well. Mm. Let's let's kind of focus on Italy itself just for a second, though, because we're talking about a very young country. You know, you, you say the Italian empire kind of gets going in, in, in the 1860s. Well, hang on a minute. Italy itself only exists as a country from, from the 1860s. So kind of 
what how how homogenous is, is Italy at this time? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question, and actually, the two things are quite closely linked together. So, Italy is unified in the in the mid. 19th century and it becomes a, a kingdom in 1861 but they haven't managed to get all of the territory they want so there's a couple of key pieces of territory in the north and uh, the northeast which is ultimately what they're going to be fighting for in the first world war so there's a sense of kind of incompletion and not being quite where they want to be but because in the 19th century there's no way to actually go about finishing national unification and that chance doesn't come until the first world war Acquiring an empire is kind of a substitute, right? There's this sense of not being quite where they want to be. They can't get to those northeastern territories. So why not instead expand into Africa to prove that they're a great power, basically? There's lots of similarities with Germany in that respect, then, isn't there? This sort of young, upstart country. I, I do that analogy, kids, which is like you have to look at all the great powers like people and that sort of Britain and France are the mature adults and Austria, Hungary and Russia are the doddery old men who've lost their place in the world and are irrelevant now. And sort of the teenagers and the upstarts are the likes of Italy and Germany. But what makes an Italian culturally at this point in terms of how people see themselves um, what makes you Italian or what does being Italian mean to people this early in their sort of genesis? Yeah, it's it's really hard to say because this is a really divided country in a lot of ways, culturally, in terms of dialect. But still to this day, if you travel around different parts of Italy, you're going to have different types of food, different, very strong local dialects. Um, and there isn't one necessarily very clear national identity, certainly not in the in the first period of unification. So Italy is is kind of in search of an identity internationally, but also domestically. Um, is it about language? Kind of. But, you know, people in Sicily speak a very different kind of Italian to people up north. Is it about maybe something kind of ethnic? There's a lot of ideas about Italianness as a as an ethnicity, as something that's kind of in the blood. Um, and that's something else that they're still really trying to figure out through this period. That's something you'd associate with the, with the fascist side of things, though, isn't it? It really does come earlier. Yeah, this is one of the things I found very interesting doing the research for this book. This is linked into uh, some quite strange ideas about eugenics and stuff that come about in the in the late 19th century. One of the most important um, criminologists, actually, is an Italian guy called Cesare Lombroso, and he has this idea... Uh, it's basically like phrenology, so studying the shapes of people's heads, studying the biological um, form of the body would tell us about the person. And this kind of spins off into an idea of like racial purity and racial degeneration. So this is an idea that we can already see in the late 19th century, long before this kind of fascist idea of race purity that we think of in the, in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? And it's happening in Germany as well. I mean, I just right. got, I'm researching something else at the moment. And if you read uh, Bon Bernardi's oh, yeah. World War from 1911, it's yeah. a Nazi playbook. It's all about German yeah. blood and German purity and breeding out the wheat. Yeah. And yeah, it's nuts. It's and I think it, I, it's important. I think this is very important. Yeah, mm. it's very important because it's easy for us to go, oh, well, those ideas were just Nazi and, and fascist ideas. But actually, they're much deeper seated in European science and culture, and they're much more widespread. It's 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 almost too easy to just say, oh, that was just. But you're Nazis. giving Hitler and Mussolini too much credit. I mean, they stole this shit from someone else. It right. wasn't. And, but that's also why it becomes so popular because it has these much deeper roots. These are ideas that have been floating around for a long time. They don't just come out of nowhere. 
Okay, well, let's let's go into empire itself then, and and, and the Italian empire and how that kind of takes form. Because is it just a, you know, again, I'm going to kind of compare to the British Empire, where it's a lot of business kind of interests go around first, um, and then kind of people move out there steadily. Is it just a steady emigration thing, or is it a conquering thing? How does how does the Italian Empire take form? Well, that's a really good question. The Italian Empire as we think of it, in comparing it to the British Empire, we've got regular colonies in East Africa. Yep, it's very much that similar type of model, business people, missionaries, things like that, slowly building up. But one of the things that's really distinctive, I would say probably unique about the Italian Empire is that when in the late 19th, early 20th century, Italy, Italians talk about colonies, they also mean emigrants. So it could be the Italian community in Brazil or in Argentina or in the USA or even in Australia, and they would talk about those as colonies. So they don't obviously think that they're going to rule them directly. They don't imagine that they're going to get a bit of New York or something. What they think is that by having a large number of Italians there, this diaspora community, it's going to be a way to kind of spread Italian influence in the wider world, spread Italian businesses, Italian markets. They're going to create markets for Italian products. They're going to send money home. And they do. They send a lot of money home. It's quite important economically is these remittance payments from emigrants. So when they talk about empire, they're talking partly about what we would recognize as normal style colonies, but also about this emigrant empire, we could call it, of of overseas emigrants. My God, did that work, though? I mean, literally in New York, Chicago, I mean, there there are Italian, even in London, there are Italian colonies in that sense still today everywhere and they very much are still Italian. And it's great because it means we can eat amazing food. (laughs) Uh, yeah. But it really does exist, doesn't it? It does. And, um, you know, Glasgow, all over all over France, there's loads of Italians in France through this period, uh, Germany, Belgium, you know, so within Europe and also outside of Europe, loads of Italians in Venezuela, for example. Um, you can see it in the football team, how many Italian footballers come from Argentina because they're like their grandma was Italian or something. So, so yeah. You've got and, Jorginho, haven't you? Exactly, exactly. So... This um, this idea of Italianness is something that the identity stays even after you've emigrated and even until the second or third generation is a really important one because the Italian state says you're still an Italian citizen and you still have to do military service. So they aren't people who are supposed to have just left Italy and never looked back. They're supposed to be people who are still very much part of the Italian state and part of the Italian nation and still tied to the to the motherland if you want and to call it financially that. as well can you explain yep. that to people because you have to send money home don't you it's not just right. like oh i'm sending my mum a few pennies from my wage packet the italians require you to still pay like taxes in well if they can they, yeah. they encourage you but yeah, yeah certainly i mean a lot of it's just coming in through through family forms but there's there's often family business connections you know if you've got a small business in italy and your cousin or whatever has moved to argentina then you're going to be doing trade directly with them it, it's a huge source of, of of profit and um and a foreign currency as well so like valuable foreign currencies coming into italy so it's a big part of the italian balance sheet how much of this is wishful thinking, though? Because I can't, you, you sort of forgetting that these other countries might have some agency and, you know, they, these might be kind of young countries in and of their, themselves. But I, I shouldn't imagine the USA is going to be too thrilled about these Italians just considering themselves Italian and not American 
as well in some measure and having responsibilities at home, as it were? Well, this is a really interesting question that actually changes a lot during the First World War, is that uh, Woodrow Wilson launches his Americanization campaign and he says Mm -hmm. we want to get rid of hyphenated Americans. So we don't want people to be Italian-American, German-American, Irish-American. We just want them to be American. And there's a very concerted attack on that idea that immigrants would maintain their their original home identity and there's this move towards more assimilation um but yeah it really depends where you go some countries really promote a strongly assimilationist culture and others don't yeah Um, america definitely we've looked at it with nikolai and the danes as well the fact that sort of you there's danish newspapers and like that yeah it's a problem for the Americans. I think that it's viewed as a problem because right. you don't want all of these allegiances. And, and it's why it, America stays neutral for so long, isn't it? Right. And in fact, in the, the, there's, um, there's a guy called Ross Wilson who's written about this a lot. Uh, you get street fighting between uh, German Americans and, and like allied Americans, as it were, in the first years of the war, because everyone's still got their allegiance to their to their original country. So the war makes it uh, a real problem for the US. Yeah. So, yeah, it is a bit of wishful thinking. But on the other hand, a lot of Italians, especially the more liberal ends of Italian um, politics, they thought this could be a good substitute to a traditional colonial empire. So instead of going out and slaughtering people and conquering new lands, this is like a peaceful empire of trade and harmonious coexistence. So it's seen as a kind of rather more idealistic way to still expand your influence overseas rather than going to Africa and slaughtering everyone. But, but they're doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Um, so yeah, they're also doing that. But these two different um, kind of models coexist slightly uncomfortably, basically. Okay, well, let's let's talk about Africa then a bit. And I guess I, I think immediately of Libya um, yeah. when I think about you know Italian imperial territory. How did how did the conquest of Libya go? So this starts in um, nineteen eleven. Uh, it's the fiftieth anniversary of Italian unification. And they've been looking to expand into North Africa for some time. Uh, And there isn't a link with it being the 50th anniversary. It's almost like a a celebration of Italian uh, maturity. Like we've been a country for 50 years. We're going to acquire this big new colony. The first hope was for Tunisia, because there's a lot of Italians living in Tunisia. But once the French make it very clear that Tunisia is theirs, um, they turn their attention to Libya instead. It's part of the Ottoman Empire up until 1911. Um, Basically, they... uh, issue a relatively random ultimatum. They just find a kind of manufactured excuse uh, and they invade in October 1911. Um, The war doesn't go brilliantly, it's got to be said, um, and it drags on for about a year, which is not really what Italy expected. I think Italy thought it was going to be a very quick, easy war. It's not. Um, But eventually uh, the Ottomans uh, surrender and uh, uh, negotiate a a peace treaty in uh, October 1912. So Italy then is officially in charge of Libya, but right from the start, again, that's more on paper than in reality, because what the Italians miscalculated was that they expected that the local populations would welcome them as liberators from Turkey. So they thought that the Arabs and Berbers of North Africa would prefer to be ruled by Italy rather than by Turkey. But in fact, that's not the case at all. And there's really no reason for them to afford that. So instead, they find that they have this 
basically anti-colonial insurgency from pretty much day one. And just because the Ottomans go away doesn't mean that Libya is settled and pacified and easily Italian. It's still resisting and it carries on resisting right the way through the war. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's that this is this thing that some people have got going now where they say that the sort of the First World War and the Second World War, actually, it's just an entire century of war. And they mark 1911 as the beginning of it, don't they? Because yeah. of the Italians in Libya, Libya and then drag it through to 1945. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely relevant on a world stage, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And it, we can definitely link it into the Balkan Wars because it's all about the Ottoman Empire kind of beginning to lose its outlying provinces and looking weak and unstable. Um, and it, it's a really interesting example of the way that the colonial and the European wars are really closely interlinked, right? So things that get destabilised in the colonies end up also helping to destabilise uh, relationships between the European great powers. So what, did, what did the Italian people at home think of this? Uh, then if um if there is potentially difficulty abroad but there's territory being gained is that uh is, is that a positive thing um libya the libya was surprisingly popular actually it's it's perhaps the first big media event in a way for the italian public uh that the press pretty much across the political board is really enthusiastic um so apart from the socialist party uh, all different shades of public opinion uh, turn out to be strongly pro-war. So there's a Catholic strand about kind of a crusading impulse of we're going to go and convert heathens, it's kind of Islamophobia. There's a nationalist imperialist strand saying we're going to return to the glories of imperial ancient Rome, because of course Libya had been uh, part of the Roman Empire, so it kind of going back to the glory days of the past. And it, it seems to really mobilise certainly all of the middle and upper classes. I don't know that ordinary working people are particularly bothered about it, but it definitely is, is mobilising a very large sector of public opinion. Um, Can I throw something completely like that isn't on the list in there in that? To what extent sort of does Italy use this trope of like, this is our this is our legacy of Rome. Oh, done massively. This and yeah, this is our justification yeah. for going. I mean, because I'm just thinking of the French and their, well, we once went to Syria 600 years ago and we started the first crusade. So Syria should be ours. Yeah, um, yeah. Italy have got a much stronger, if you like, yeah. justification for an empire, haven't they? For sure. And they use it a huge amount. Um, and they use it both as a sort of precedent and it says that we're rightfully should be there. But the other thing is that the Italians have a kind of national insecurity complex about their military in this time period, because the Italian wars of unification in the 19th century, not particularly impressive. You know, they need the French to come and get them Rome. They need the Prussians to help them out in 1866. They have a series of basically humiliating episodes in the 19th century. So they're very anxious to prove that they can fight. And so referring back to ancient Rome is really important. We're the inheritors of the ancient Roman legions. So of course we are, you know, victorious and, and military. So yeah, they, they, they use it not just to refer to specific bits of territory, but to kind of invoke this idea of militaristic power. Back on sort of almost racial theory, aren't we? The idea of martial races and... and... Right having yourself be, be counted as one. Right. And the idea that in some way, at a biological level, the Italians of 1911 are the same as the Romans of, of 2000 years before, which is a pretty weird one in, in almost every respect. I think as well, I was very interested 
in your books and in your notes that you sent us for this interview. Okay, so I'm half Pakistani and I get mistaken in Italy for an Italian. Italians, let's move on to racial theory, aren't necessarily white, white, are they? Right. It's an issue for them culturally. Do they feel it's an issue for them? Um, well, yes, in this period, it's not always just about skin tone. It's about like height and physique. Like, are they kind of big, tough, manly men? Are they tall enough? That sort of thing. But yeah, it comes up a lot to do with emigration. So this links back to that question of Italians, for example, going to the US. They're often the subject of racial discrimination in America, right? They're treated as an ethnic minority and as a kind of inferior ethnic minority. Um, And that plays out very badly back home. So yeah, there's a lot of anxieties about are we properly white? Are we properly kind of manly and tough? Are we a bit short? Are we a bit, you know, not quite right? Um, they come up with this theory of like the the Mediterranean races or the Latin races, and they say we're we're not quite Aryan, but we're a, a separate elite white group. But there is a real concern about it. And how do you prove that you are part of the of the cultural European elite? Again, military victory, great power status is also part of kind of proving that you are white Europeans. Mm. So, so then taking that forward into the First World War, you, you know, having your, your Mediterranean races fighting against the, the Northern European barbarians is something I guess you could argue, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that does come up. I mean, we hear a lot of this in the French context of like the German culture versus the French civilization. The Italians are very into that as well. And they, they're into the idea that France and Italy are similar Latin peoples, Latin civilizations. Um, but uh it these these ideas in italy at least are not so much an expression of of kind of strength and assertiveness as of anxiety like they're they're constantly worried that this might not be quite true there a lot of people are worried about southern italians especially who are darker skinned um are they inferior there's a lot of um well, some sort of pseudoscience being written about uh, are Southerners more susceptible to alcoholism? Are they morally degenerate? Are they more susceptible to crime? Is there like some biological reason why they're not quite as good as the rest of us? Um, so, yeah, the, this is both a justification, but also something that they need to kind of almost prove to themselves, basically. All that said, and just going away from the notes for a, for a second, the war against Austria and Germany was by no means guaranteed at the beginning of 1914, no. uh, was it? Because, you, you know, you're part of a triple alliance with those two countries and you have a, a, a an army chief of staff who um, is, is firmly in the, yeah, let's go and get France oh, yeah. camp. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a funny yeah. course of events that takes, takes things that way. I think it's a great example of contingency. It's not at all um, a foregone conclusion, as you say. And there are plenty of people who would have been happy to go to war against France. Don't forget that Nice is the birthplace of Garibaldi and had been Italian for centuries. It's Nizza, right? And they eat pesto and they may have strange kind of pizza and stuff. Anyway, there's plenty of Italians who would have liked to go and fight the French and get Nice back instead, right? That doesn't work out for multiple reasons. Um, to do with, well, to do with many things, but one of them is to do with the role of Britain in all of this. Um, Italy has no coal. Mm. This is a big problem. And if most of your coal comes from Britain, some of it from France, but comes from allied nations and it often comes on British ships or it comes through British controlled shipping lanes. War with France is one thing, war with Britain. Mm. 
And there is zero appetite for war with Britain because it would have been economically disastrous. So it's when you're uh, a big peninsula and you've got a long coastline, picking a fight with the biggest navy in the world isn't the sharpest. Right. And, um, you know, OK, so potentially you could get your coal from Germany and Austria. But if they're at war, they're not going to be selling you any coal either. So, you know, it becomes quite a, an urgent issue. I don't think it's all about coal, but coal and the economic side is definitely a part of it. Yeah, because then you have to factor in. I mean, I just like the perfidious Italy line from um, Asquith and that is because it is about territorial gains as well, isn't it? But we talked about sure. that. Yeah, a bit last time. I wanted to ask you, so we've talked about this, maybe this insecurity on the part of Italians in terms of race and that. Does that translate as a better, um, not understanding, a better sort of opinion of people who aren't white or are they firmly in the European white centric, everybody else is rubbish and the white man is king camp? Yes. The reason they're so worried about it is because they think that only the white man counts right so the concern that they might not be fully considered by everybody else to be in that category is that's why it's such a problem um so we see a lot of discussions of uh, of african and arab inferiority and this really underpins a lot of what they're doing as colonizers the way it does for most colonial powers right um and a lot of so again sort of pseudoscience discussions of what the arab is like as a person and what they can and can't do and what soldiers can be expected to do so they're, they're recruiting uh, black east african soldiers into the into the military but again they have this whole set of theories uh, as to what they can be expected to do and what they can't be expected to do which is very much on racial lines when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss that's something i wanted to ask you that's not in the notes as well so we see um it, we're very familiar with the site of troops from senegal and algeria and the west indies and that in british and french armies but are the the italians obviously don't have a massive empire like that but are they recruiting their colonial subjects into the army as well and using them in europe so, um, yes, into the army, they have uh, from the 1880s or so onwards, they're recruiting what they call Askari, which comes from the Arabic word for soldier. So it's the same kind of word as the Germans are using. Um, and it's mostly Eritreans and Somalians. But they also take volunteers. So there's some Ethiopians serving in the Italian forces, basically almost as mercenaries. There's even volunteers from the Arabian Peninsula and Yemen and so on. Uh, and then after 1912, they're also recruiting Libyans. So they have quite a, a large Libyan force and they have infantry, lots of light, irregular cavalry, uh, gendarmes, border forces, stuff like that. So when the war breaks out, it's a big debate. Are we going to send 
these colonial troops to serve on the main national front against Austria in the way that Britain and France use their colonial troops. And uh, Cadorna, the uh, Italian chief of general staff, says, yes, absolutely. And he sets up training camps and he says, we need to teach these men about trench warfare. And he sends people down from the front to train them how to use hand grenades and wire cutters and all the rest of trench warfare training. And then the civilian government says, no, hang on a minute. Um, And basically for racial reasons, uh, the civilian government block the idea. So these troops are all trained and ready to go and to be sent against Austria. Um, And the prime minister and the minister of the interior say, we're not happy about sending uh, black or Arab troops into the lines against the Austrians. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So they go home. That's basically that. They continue to serve, but they're, they're used in, uh, within Africa. Okay. They're used uh, as garrison troops uh, and to try and help suppress the, uh, the rebellion in Libya. There's, there's things in common with the British Empire, because I, I think, you know, the, the Viceroy in particular in, in India was not wild at all about getting brown-skinned Indian troops used to killing white-skinned Europeans, even if yeah. it is the Germans, mm. you know, for, for what that might mean to India later. Yeah, absolutely. There's this idea of there's a sort of racial uh, bar that they don't want to cross. Yeah, it's like Uh, what ideas are they going to come home with? It's very prevalent in South Africa as well. Yeah. Yeah. First World War. In terms of, though, Italy, Italy is one of the great powers. But what does that mean in terms of we talked a lot about Italian anxiety? Is there status anxiety? Because they're not a Britain or a Germany. They're not one of I mean, like the, we said they were like Germany in that they were a young nation at this point. But Germany has had this massive explosion in population and industry and that. And Italy yeah. hasn't had that, has it? Well, it has, but on a, on a smaller level. I mean, the problem with Italy is it's not like Germany or France or Britain, but it's clearly a step above I don't know, someone like Portugal or Belgium or Spain in terms of its demographic, industrial, economic status and in terms of its kind of diplomatic weight. So it does occupy this awkward position. Um, It's sometimes been called least of the great powers. Uh, It's also anxious about how it's perceived. Like you think, if we compare it to Austria-Hungary, it's territorially smaller and and might seem weaker in some ways, but actually it's, it's growing, it's on the up whereas somewhere like Austria is, is kind of declining. So it's in this awkward position. And the idea of the First World War is to both prove to the world that it is a great power and cement that status by gaining these important bits of extra territory, uh, which includes colonies. So they're very clear right from the start that they want colonial expansion as well. They want more colonies at the end of the war to really just demonstrate to everyone that they're on the same footing or almost the same footing as Britain and France. And, we, and so we're, we're now coming back, we're moving away, I guess, from Africa, although it might, that might be part of it, but we're talking about possibly uh, territory in Europe, part of those unreclaimed bits of Italy from Austria yeah. in the in the north. Um, yeah. 
territory in the Adriatic as well. They've got their eyes on bits of the Balkans. And again, they're going back to these historic claims. So there's all these places along the coast of Croatia today, um, places like Split, uh, even the way down, down towards Dubrovnik, very beautiful areas, um, great holiday destination. The, the, the Venetians were there in the 13, 1400s. And so now some Italians are saying, well, you know, those used to be Italian or Italy founded this. Look, oh, look at those Italian churches. Those should be Italian again. So they're using these quite spurious historical claims. Um, they're interested in Albania. They like the idea of a protectorate there, um, but also in the Eastern Mediterranean. So uh, the Libyan War, 1911-1912, as well as Libya, they also seize the Dodecanese Islands. So that's a, a set of islands basically just off the coast of Turkey. The most important one is Rhodes and all of the, the small islands around Rhodes, obviously now are all Greek. Um, they had been Turkish and they are seized by Italy in 1912 as well. And that's the beginning of this kind of pivot towards Italian interest in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East. So, okay, so these islands with a largely Greek population, um, they they not totally against the idea of uh, Italian, um, if not ownership, but then at least administration rather than sure. rather than the Ottomans. Right, I think the Greek population of the islands, most of them would rather be part of Greece. But if that's not an option, if the choice is Ottoman Empire or Italy, many of them prefer the Italian option. So, whilst not adored let's put it that way um italy isn't sort of treated isn't wholly unwelcome in 1912 but as soon as the possibility comes of unity with greece then the population of the islands is going to want to kick the italians out for sure brilliant so leading on from that what does italy do between 1915 when it comes into the first world war and 23 to try and earn their great power status and sort of prove to the world that they belong well, it does a couple of different things. Firstly, it's it's pursuing its own national objectives. That's the war against Austria, those borderlands, the, the, the unredeemed lands um, along the borders. But it also really wants to show that it is a valid and important part of the alliance um, because it wants to make sure that when it comes to negotiating a peace treaty, everyone knows that they've really contributed. So starting in 1916-17, they start to get involved in sending expeditionary forces to multiple different places. They've already got troops in Albania. They agree to start sending troops to the Macedonian front. So they're fighting in the Balkans alongside French and British and, in fact, international uh, allied forces there. And as the war goes on, they start to participate more and more in, in really kind of far-flung um, destinations. So they send people to Murmansk and to Manchuria. Uh, they send a, a very small detachment, but they send troops to Palestine in 1917. Uh, they, they really want to kind of prove that they're fully involved. And that continues after the war. So when there's the, um, the Allied occupation of Upper Silesia, they, the Italians send a delegation to that as well. So they're, they're really trying to contribute in all of the, the kind of global war effort. By and large, they're not sending huge numbers of people each time, but they're, they're making it clear that they've got a presence everywhere from Palestine to Manchuria, so that when the negotiations happen at the end of the war, Italy will be able to say, we were fully part of this global war effort. Um, and alongside that, they're trying to seize their own bits of territory. They want to expand Libya, and they're increasingly interested in grabbing a bit of southern Turkey as well. 
Yeah, I don't I mean, think it goes quite be... to plan, though, does it? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> it, yeah, be like naive when you think about it, wouldn't it? To think that Italy wouldn't be interested in some of the carcass of the Ottoman Empire because who wouldn't right. be? It's all going to be up for the taking. Everybody right. that years before the First World War. So um, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, May 1916, is the French-British moment of carving up the Ottoman Empire. And they don't tell Italy about it. And the official excuse is that Italy hadn't declared war on Germany at that point. And so France and Britain couldn't fully let them into all of their secret agreements. Yeah, there's got more to do with the fact that they've got enough of an issue agreeing with each other. Never mind <laughs> the third power who's going to want exactly. to well, right? So eventually, so in August 1916, Italy declares war on Germany and the Italian foreign minister, Sonino, says, right now, how about it? What have you agreed in the Middle East. And I've actually seen the documentation in the French archives here. The French are going, can we come up with a new excuse to not tell them what's going on? And the British are like, I can't really think of anything. And they literally, they dither for a couple of months trying to find a reason to not share the text of Sykes-Picot because they know what's going to happen. When they finally do share it, the Italians are absolutely furious because in the Treaty of London, 1915, when Italy joins the war, it stated very clearly that in the event of the carve-up of the Ottoman Empire, Italy will get an equal share. So Sykes-Picot is violating that treaty that France and Britain had signed just a year before. So the Italians say, right, we have to be in on this. And after much toing and froing, they signed an agreement in 1917 called the, the Treaty of Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne, at which they give basically Italy equal standing in the carve-up of the Ottoman Empire alongside Britain and France. So they get... Uh, a direct rural area and a sphere of influence, just like the A and B zones that Sykes-Picot has set out for, for France and Britain. Difference is that what France and Britain have been offered are the non-Turkish portions of the empire. Well, not offered, but claiming. What they're claiming is the non-Turkish bits, right? They're claiming Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and so on. What Turkey uh, what Italy gets is the Turkish bit. And so that's why it's going to be so much harder for the Italians to push their claim than it is for the French and the British. So in theory, Sykes-Picot is amended and there should have been, if it all gone to, to the Italian plan, there should have been an Italian version of the Middle Eastern mandates that France and Britain get hold of. Mm. Yeah. But of course, <laughs> they're not sharing, are they, France and Britain? They're not, they're really not. And um, there's a good reason why France and Britain carved up for themselves the non-Turkish bits of the empire because it's one thing to detach all of those Arab areas and it's another thing to try and carve up actual Turkey itself yeah. and the Turks are not having it, understandably. You get a lot more notions of sovereignty uh, at the end of the yeah. Great War, don't you? Well, so... Yeah, and the Turks are very clear. They have a kind of Wilsonian idea. We're not here to be carved up. We're not, you know, we're not... a a suitable subject for colonisation. We're not having it. Yeah, it's one thing taking the empire that's been falling apart for years, but if you're not taking my country... Exactly. Exactly. But that can then rumble into the split of the Austro-Hungarian Empire as well, can't it? It's all these different countries right, will break you all up as well. But, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Italy do get... I mean, so Italy's... I'm, I'm flying like by the seat of my pants here from the George V, but Italy want basically all the Croatian coastline nearly down to Dubrovnik, don't they, when they yes. come in with their demands in 1950. Yes. What do they get? Well, what they get is um, quite a lot of what they'd asked for. Right? There's sometimes this idea that Italy gets nothing at the Peace of Versailles. It's not true at all. They get um, Trieste, which is the most important part for them. 
they get most of the Istrian peninsula and they get some important coastal uh, towns and ports, uh, Zara and a couple of other places where there is a, um, a clearly Italian population as well. There are Italians living down that coast, right? But they don't get this huge swathe of the, the Dalmatian coastline that they had, some of them had hoped for, and they don't get the city of Fiume, which is the, the what becomes that real flashpoint. Um, Fiume had not been included, by the way, in the Treaty of London. They didn't ask for it in 1915, they suddenly pop up and ask for it in 1919, and uh, that doesn't go so well. <laughs> Although, like, now I'm thinking, well, you, you call them perfidious Italy, but, you know, you've been a bit piece of work as well in terms of Sykes-Pico and right. the Italians. Absolutely. Well, one of the problems for the Italians is, in terms of the, the Croatian coastline, is that they'd imagined a defeated Austria-Hungary who was a defeated enemy and that they could take stuff off. But of course, that's not the case anymore. All we now have is new Yugoslavia and Yugoslavia is like a basically an allied nation. So from being a defeated enemy, they've somehow turned into a, a new friend who needs to be protected and looked after by Wilson and the other allies. And so instead of someone that you can just help yourself to their territories, uh, the allies are going to say, no, that, that's going to Yugoslavia. And so that's not great news as far as the Italians are concerned. They in almost would have preferred Austria-Hungary to survive in a very, very weak condition rather yeah. than have this new Yugoslavia come along and, in their view, kind of cheat them out of the stuff that they wanted, the stuff they thought should be theirs. Lucky. You can see your brain working. Yeah, well, no, I just... <laughs> I kind of... There's, there's, there's loads to say, isn't there? I, do, I kind of think... Your, your kind of conclusion in the book where you talk about um oh there's a really nice phrase that you, you used in there uh tradire e fare cerimetto il mare which yes. is you know in between saying something and doing something there's the ocean practically yeah. there's uh, right um and kind of it feels like italy wanted to run before it was before it was toddling in in terms of kind of imperial strength and committing to huge war it just it just didn't have yeah. the kind of depth of resource and stability and homogeneity if i can if i can even say that there's 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 yeah. lots that it was falling short of yeah that's absolutely right and um one thing that's worth bearing in mind is that you know i say italy does this or italy what's that italy isn't a monolith i'm talking often about the the more nationalist, more imperialist, more demanding elements of Italian public and political opinion. There's plenty of people in Italy saying, hang on a minute, we should be consolidating at home, we should be spending more money on domestic issues, we shouldn't be doing this. You know, Italy has a huge socialist party which is very anti-war, uh, they think it's a mistake from the start. They never support it. Uh, and they consistently say, this is a mistake. We should be spending money on you know, education and employment insurance at home. So not everyone in Italy thinks we should be off conquering the world. The problem is, is that there's enough of them in influential places that they're pushing policy in this direction that even many other Italians can see is, you know, it's daft and it's not going to work. So there is a big gap between this very expansionist rhetoric and ambition and the reality of what Italy can do. Um, and part of that's to do with empire. There's this paradox that to conquer an empire, you need the vast wealth that only big empires already have by, by this period, right? France and Britain have the, the wealth of their empires behind them and they can use that to expand their empires further. Italy's empire is so small and weak 
it doesn't have the resources to expand its empire further. It wasn't even self-sufficient, was it, really, in terms of um, your resources, possibly food, simply, you know? You... Right, certainly Libya is receiving food shipments from the mainland or from other bits of the empire. They're buying in pretty much everything for Libya throughout the war. So it's an active drain on resources, yeah. Mad. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting as this, as this kind of collective illusion that they could somehow do more than they, than now as historians, it looks kind of ridiculous in the sense that it's really easy to see why it wasn't going to work. But uh, there's enough people at the time who seriously think it's possible. Um, and that's one of the things that really interested me is this gap between these assumptions and the reality of what's going on underneath and, and what resources are available. It's mad, isn't it? It's just like, it's interesting for me. I keep comparing them to Germany, but it is a really interesting comparison to make because it's that same desperation to be one of the big kids, isn't it? Driving. Yeah. It yeah. happens for Germany in a different way in that they've sort of chewed off random Pacific islands and things that nobody wants anymore. Um, and it's just interesting to see how Italy went about sort of the same problem. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I think that... Um... Uh, as with Germany, it's interesting to think about these ambitions in the light of the rise of the fascist dictatorships afterwards, right? Yeah. Because this issue about rhetoric versus reality, what can you really do and what do you want to do? What are you claiming you could do? Those issues become very important when it comes to the dictatorships, but actually they're already there long beforehand. They have much deeper roots, right? And is it born out of a sense of, so for Germany, it's, it's an obvious sense of, we lost so this isn't good and we need to change things with Italy is it more of a sense of we didn't get what we wanted Um, yeah there's a strong sense of betrayal that that Italy's allies cheated her out of what was rightfully hers right whether it comes to the Adriatic or to to Turkey and the eastern Mediterranean uh, that Britain France and also the USA so Woodrow Wilson becomes kind of public enemy number one uh, have cheated Italy out of the kind of rightful spoils of war. And, uh, you know, you've said this before, the Italian population suffer a comparable proportion of casualties to Britain. Uh, the, the war effort is absolutely enormous. It's, it's total war, just as it is in Britain or France or anywhere else. And the, the population expects some kind of something, right? It's like for Italy feeling like they've won, but they haven't, is the right. drive that pushes them towards extremism and fascism. Whereas in Germany, it's obviously that they lost and they got screwed, which is what pushes them down the same road. It's just interesting that one's officially a victor and it still happens. Yeah. So this is the the so-called myth of the mutilated victory, that Italy was a victorious nation, but the allies kind of stabbed it, I guess, in the side, as opposed to the stab in the back myth. It's not the Italian domestic population so much as the as the allies who've who've stopped it from getting its its rightful victory um but people tend to think of that just in terms of places like fiume and the the italian austrian war my one of the things i want to say in my book is that's also about the imperial context right the italians also feel betrayed when it comes to the eastern mediterranean even when it comes to to, to africa you know the Allies in the Treaty of London in 1915 said, we will give you compensation in Africa too. And then they they do a few tiny little adjustments, but it's not really what, what anyone was in Italy was hoping for. So there's that, that real sense of betrayal and alienation. Okay. Anything else? I really like the book. 
I thought it was a really um, intelligent, almost you know, philosophical and sociological piece of work. And I, I think if anyone's you know serious about um, learning about Italy in the First World War and 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 don't pick this up, they're 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 missing missing out. Quite simply, Vanda is basically the queen of <laughs> Italy in World War One um, in English and not writing about. Britain's little contribution to the Italian front. It, she's yeah. about the Italians in English. Let's talk about Which another smash up on the Asonso. An amazing, yeah. <laughs> we... Well, you know, I, I wish more people in English were writing about it because there's so much that's really interesting and there's, there's really just not a lot in English at the moment out there. But hopefully, you know, graduate students will start to work on it and people will start to write about it more with time. That's my hope. Don't do yourself out of a job. Well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be the queen, but, yeah. you know, I will, I will accept, you know, minor members of the minions. She would like more minions. So, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Minions can apply uh, and I will welcome them. <laughs> what are you working on next? Um, I might continue more thinking about the imperial side because we don't have a book in English that covers the whole of the Italian empire. Yeah. It's but once that's, you get just, stuck just, it in. Just a small project, yeah. Just just yeah, yeah, a little just, just a little side project. Um, yeah, but actually I'm thinking I'm doing a project with uh, Jay Winter about the Treaty of Lausanne at the moment, which is 1923, the end of the, the war with Turkey. Uh, he's writing a big book about it. I'm working with him on the Italian side of that as well. So just still kind of wrapping up some of these issues about the First World War and colonialism. There's, um, there's always more to be said, right? Always, always. We're we're historians. We'll always find something else to rattle on about, won't we? It's basically our job. This is why we didn't do maths, because we don't just want to provide an answer and move on. We just want to clip to it for years. That's right. So, yeah, and I'm going to Milan, so there's new archives. I don't know the Milan archives. I'm going to dig around and see what's there and uh, see what I can find. Standing. Good luck packing up the child and Uh. and everything (laughs) else again. (laughs) Vanda, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure, as always. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.